0: Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. If you got your Bibles, if you would, get them open to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. I, um, I have been... I've had an encounter multiple times in the past couple weeks with the issue, the question, if you would, regarding the unpardonable sin. You ever heard that phrase before? What is the unpardonable or unforgivable sin? Well, we're going to look at that today in the context, really, of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So, that song that they just sang was obviously very, very appropriate. So, if you made your way to Mark chapter 3... We're going to start reading in verse 20, and we're going to read through verse 30 this morning. Speaking of the ministry of Jesus, verse 20, it says, Then he, being Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again. So he had just kind of left a crowd, but now they followed him home, and... uh, uh, they, they, they were The crowd was so big it says um, That they could not even eat So Jesus and his disciples were unable to eat Because the crowds are so big It says and when his family heard it Now this is Jesus' Biological family His half brothers and his mom You can find that down in verse 31 But the, it says They went out to seize him They've gone to seize Jesus For they were saying He is out of his mind. Verse 22, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there you have it. Demons, sin, sin. Beelzebul, Satan, welcome to River Bluff Church. You know, we don't ever need to be afraid to address difficult passages of Scripture for fear of how we might look to the world because, friends, they're going to scoff at us no matter what. They scoffed at Jesus as we just read about. You know, and, but interestingly to me, those great scoffers, the great philosophers of our world today still have no answer for the problem of evil in our world. But God's Word does, which is one more reason it can be trusted as not only reliable, but inerrant and infallible and completely trustworthy so that you could build your life upon it. You know, in, in our world today, if you were to begin to kind of look at the scope of what Hollywood puts out in movies, there are a couple of themes that I see recurring. One of those has to do with the end of the world. The other has to do with darkness and demons and, and uh, just incredible evil, you know, zombies, all that kind of stuff. And movie directors and Hollywood script writers, you know, they have to oftentimes imagine what the face of evil looks like. Jesus... When he was here doing ministry, never had to imagine. It was, he faced it daily. It was constant with him in his ministry. And here we see him dealing with this. But you and I need to remember, we deal with it too. We, we, we face it too. We don't always realize it. We often don't recognize it until it's much too late. But here's the thing with Jesus. Anytime he came in contact with the kingdom of darkness in the Scriptures, he dealt with it head-on, directly, with full, complete authority. Now, if you wanted to jump back to the Gospel of Mark, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, kind of Mark records the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And you notice that Jesus immediately, when he begins his ministry, he jumps right into, he, he first declares what the Gospel is, And then he jumps right into beginning to heal people of diseases and sicknesses and calamities that they have faced. He also begins to cast out the demonic, those who have been enslaved to to Satan and his power. Um, Mark chapter 1 tells us about an encounter early in Jesus' ministry uh, where Jesus is teaching in the, the synagogue at Capernaum. And Jesus is is teaching in there, and there's a man uh, present who is battling this attack from Satan, demonic attack, and he just cries out right in the middle of the service. And Jesus doesn't miss a beat. Jesus, he just deals with the situation authoritatively. He frees the man from this demonic possession. You can go back and read it if you want to later on, but what I want you to see is what happened to the crowd. That was present in the synagogue in that moment. Mark chapter 1 verse 27 is going to come up on the screen. It says they were all amazed. So they started asking questions among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. What's this? I mean, they're they're asking is what's going on here? Really, the question probably was better. Who is this? Who is this that is able to, to so radically deal with the demonic, to deal with disease? And today's text, we see Jesus confronting the kingdom of darkness and the subject of Satan. Now, as I see it, that, those 11 verses that we just read kind of have three kind of breakups, if you would. The first kind of starting point that I see is Jesus being accused. And there are two very significant groups in Jesus' life that come and make accusations against him. The first group is Jesus' own family. Now, that resolves itself when you get down to verses 31 and and We're not really going to address that too much. But I do want you to notice what they accuse Jesus of. They accuse Jesus, his family does, of being mentally unstable. They just say he's got, he's got mental instability. And so they're kind of coming, coming against what Jesus was accomplishing in the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Then he, Jesus, went home, and a crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now again, go down to verse 31. You see that his brothers are there. And you'll see that his mother is there. Now, I don't know. Maybe his brothers were there because they they just they, they thought, okay, our family is getting a bad reputation. You know, I, I don't know what's going on with my brother here. But we, we got we to reel him in. But see, they were not accurately seeing the spiritual battle that was going on. They had completely misjudged Jesus. And the scripture says they went to seize him. That same phrase, seize him is also translated later in the Garden of Gethsemane when the uh, temple guards came to arrest Jesus. They came to arrest him. Same, same words, arrest him or seize him. And that happened just before his crucifixion. So the, the family is, amen, amen. She's got it going on this morning. Somebody else, shout out. The, um, the family is here to, not to rally around Jesus, but to round him up, to, to, to round him up. Now, maybe they were there out of kindness. It, it, it's possible. Maybe they heard that Jesus was working too hard. The scripture did tell us that he was working so hard serving other people that he could not even eat. And his mama was there. And his, you know, mamas, they want to make sure you do what? You eat. You know, they want, they want to make sure you, you, you got enough to You're taking care of yourself. But what they weren't seeing was Jesus' kingdom focus. Later on, the apostle John records Jesus saying about himself in John chapter 4, verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus says, what fills me up, what sustains my life, is accomplishing the purposes of my Father. Jesus said, that's what truly feeds me, what gives me life, what brings me joy. What, what about you? You think about the different areas of your life. Where are you finding your purpose? What, what do you feed on? What, what fills you up with joy? You know, far too often, it's the stuff of this world that we have to try to fill ourselves up with. the, You know, bigger, better, newer. Bigger, better, newer car. Bigger, better, newer boat. Bigger, better, newer vacation. Bigger, better, newer adventure. We keep chasing after these things. And Jesus is saying life can be about so much more. There's so much more to life. He said, my joy, my food, what sustains me is doing the will of God. And so Jesus' own family, They, they don't get him. They don't see. They don't understand what's going on. Really, at this point, his brothers, obviously, and maybe even Mary, don't recognize him as the promised Messiah. They don't see what's going on. They don't see that he is God with skin on. He is God in the flesh. But they're not his only accusers. His family accuses him. But then, Jesus' own religious leaders, the religious leaders of his nation, accuse Jesus of demonic collusion. They, they, they're saying that he is collaborating with, with the enemy. These are the spiritual leaders. Now, these guys had come down from the temple in Jerusalem, the, the, the seat of their, of their faith. These were the most studied uh, guys in, in this day. They had dedicated themselves to daily study the Word of God. Their job was to actually handwrite it. Record it. They, they literally were reduplicating so other, other places, other synagogues could have accurate renderings of the Scriptures to read from. And here's what the spiritual leaders in Jesus' day do. They come and they accuse Jesus of the worst possible crime. They accuse him of, of religious treason. Of really breaking the first two commandments about having no other gods and serving no other gods. In Mark 22 we read and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons and so they're actually leveling two accusations first they're saying he's been possessed by a demon they specifically say possessed by Beelzebub. now who's this Beelzebul thing what, what, what's up with that? It has its root meaning it, from the Old Testament. Some of you may have remembered, we talked about this a few weeks ago, about the the, the false god Baal or Baal. Uh, you can read about it uh, really throughout the Old Testament. But in Elijah, um, in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah is on the top of Mount Carmel, and he is, there's a smackdown going on between Elijah versing the 450 prophets of Baal. And in that moment... Uh, there's proof who God, the God of gods really is. And it's Yahweh God, Elijah's God. And so Elijah kind of mocks and, and, and scoffs at those, those false prophets. But on that day, God is proven to be God. And Baal is proven to have no power whatsoever, that he's just a statue carved by human hands from some discarded wood. That's basically who he was. And the scribes loved that story, and they knew that the people of God loved that story. I mean, that's one of those stories you get behind and say, our team really, you know, we we kicked butt and took names that day, you know. And so God's people were excited about that story. They would have connected to, to, to all of this. And so the scribes are using that story to make accusations against Jesus. They're pointing back to this Baal thing. Now, over the years, the hundreds of years between 1 Kings 18 and, and now where we're seeing Jesus facing them, that, that name had been, had some, you know, some descriptors added to it. And so the, the name became associated with the Lord of the flies or the Lord uh, of the dead. But all biblical scholars that I read agreed they're talking about Satan. This is a reference to the devil himself. It's just kind of another name swapped out. And so they were accusing Jesus of being possessed by Satan himself and in league, in collaborative effort uh, with Satan, that Jesus had himself been so darkened by evil that now he was colluding with the prince of all, all evil, the devil himself. Now, remember, they came down from Jerusalem. These are the top scholars of religion in that day. And they're they're telling people, he's possessed. He's possessed and he's colluding. These were serious accusations. Well, that leads us to kind of the next phase in this account. And that's Jesus' response. Let's look how Jesus responds. Because Jesus responds to these two accusations leveled at him by these scribes with two parables. And I really pray that you see the brilliance of Jesus in dealing with this the way he does. But before he, he gives those parables, he first does something else even incredibly powerful and, and really just so much like Jesus. Remember, they are coming after Jesus' heart. They are are personally attacking Jesus' heart for God. They're coming after him that way. They're they're attacking his integrity. And Jesus, he responds to their jealous, arrogant, venom-filled lies with an invitation. Look, Look at, Jesus gives them an invitation to community with him. Commune, come, come be with me. Jesus invites them to come closer to join him. Now, remember, in the room, it was so crowded that Jesus couldn't even eat. But in, in that kind of context, Jesus says to them in verse 23, it says, and he called them to him. Jesus says, hey, come, come on over, sit at the table. I'll get some of my disciples to leave. You, you guys scribes, come on, come on let's, let's talk. And I believe what Jesus is saying is, come, come be with me. Come, come sit with me. Come close to me. Let's, let's get to know each other. Jesus doesn't do like we so often do, and that is assume a defensive posture. Jesus is not worried about himself. He's thinking about others and about what they need in this moment and what, what kind of deception had brought them to this point where they're so angry and they're spewing such lies. And like Jesus always, always, always does, and he does for you, Jesus says, come be with me. Just just come. Come be with me. I want, I want you near me. If you have been around the river here for at least the last year, some of you will know that um, last July, it's been a year now, last July, the elders uh, sent me on a sabbatical and while on that sabbatical, uh, I had to do some personal work uh, with the Lord, some, some inventory of my own soul. And one of the passages that became healing to me, uh, God used it in a special way, was Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. It's not going to come up on the screen. I'm actually going to read it to you from uh, the message translation. It's, it's a, a loose rendering, if you would. Um, but I love the way that Eugene Peterson Uh, interprets this passage of Scripture. Verse 11 says, Jesus says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Then come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus is saying that day in that house, and he is saying today in this house, even if you have rejected him, even if you have lied about him, even if you have cursed him, even if you have denied him or failed him a thousand times, Jesus looks at you and says, I love you. You don't have to carry the guilt or shame of that around anymore. You, you can just come to me. Come and sit at my table. But here's the other thing Jesus always does when you sit at the table with him. He brings truth to you, real truth, truth that changes and transforms lives. And he does that with the scribes that day. He doesn't do it in a way that escalates like we so often do when somebody says something we don't like. Jesus de-escalates the situation and he uses two parables, two stories, these powerful stories with a point, two different stories to address these allegations In the first parable, Jesus responds addressing this idea of internal division. This internal division. And and so he's going to speak to this. And Jesus is addressing the scribes not only relationally, but also now intellectually. He basically says, let's reason. I want want us to think together about what you have said. Let's, Let's reason this out. So in verse 23, Jesus says, he calls them to him and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house, a family is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. Here Jesus points out the first of two ways that a kingdom or an organization or a family can be torn apart, and that's through internal division, division from within. And Jesus says, to say that I'm casting out Satan with the power of Satan doesn't even make sense. I mean, it's illogical. Just think with me, men. Come on, let's think together. Why would Satan cast himself out of a life when he has it under his authority and control? Why, why would he do that? If if a civil war breaks out in a kingdom, that kingdom is done for. If strife comes in a marriage, so that civility leaves and a, a bit of rudeness, uh, a bitterness and uh, a root of bitterness and un- uncivility sets into the hearts of the spouses, that marriage often ends in divorce. And Jesus is saying, if Satan is fighting against Satan, then his kingdom is cooked. It's done. It's over. And so, we ought to be able to look around pretty soon and there shouldn't be any more evil. Everybody in the room that day, especially the scribes, knew that wasn't so. But see, Jesus knew the schemes of Satan better than the scribes did. He knew of Satan's great deceptive capacity, even to, to deceive brilliant minds from ultimate truth, knew the deception of, of Satan and that his purpose on earth was to kill and steal and, and destroy, deceiving, again, even brilliant minds, to not be able to see things that are, that just, are so, you know, just so clear, like life begins at conception. Brilliant minds have been deceived into thinking that's, that's not true. Doctors, brilliant brilliant doctors who have sworn themselves to, to save life have been deceived into savagely silencing the beating heart of an unborn child. Friends, that's Satan. That's the power of the enemy. So Jesus points out what's going on here with him casting out demons. It's not, it's not the work of Satan that's going on in his ministry. And so what Jesus is doing here in this first parable is Jesus is pointing out that he has wisdom about how the world works. How the world works in the physical realm with real kingdoms and real families. And how the world works in the spiritual realm. No ruler would stand against himself. No ruler would kick out somebody who's doing their bidding. That would be foolish. No enemy army attacks itself. Jesus is saying it's not the power of Satan. Satan. By which I cast out demons. But it is a power. It is an incredible power. And then Jesus responds with his second parable. I love it because it's a one verse parable. Just a one verse parable. And what Jesus does here with this parable. Is he responds about an external attack. So he looks at how... Something can fall through internal division, but also from external attack. And now Jesus is talking about not something going on on the inside of the house, destroying it, but something that's coming from the outside against it. In verse 27, Jesus speaks these words. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. And I love this. And Jesus, again, he's brilliant here. And I'm not really sure the scribes were sharp enough at the moment to pick this up. But Jesus is saying there's another way a kingdom can fall. And that is a more powerful invading force comes from the outside to take over. And what Jesus is saying here is, there is a strong man. But there is a stronger man. He's saying, yes, Satan is a strong man. But I am the stronger man. I am the stronger man. And so what Jesus is pointing out in this second parable is this. That he has power over Satan. That he has power over Satan. Sure, Jesus says, Satan has power. But nothing like the power of God. Nothing like what I've brought on earth. Now several biblical commentators that I read as I was studying this in Mark chapter 3. Point to a prophecy uh, found in Isaiah chapter 49. And you'll see uh, the, the, how, how closely they align with this one verse parable of Jesus. Look at uh, Isaiah 49 verses 24 through 26. And one of the things you ought to know. The scribes and Pharisees, they loved Isaiah. They loved to quote the book of Isaiah. They loved to study the book of Isaiah. Verse 24 of chapter 49 says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For uh, thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors, eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood, as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior. And your redeemer, the mighty one. You see how he's talking about God said, I'm going to deal with those strong people because I'm stronger. I'll deal with your strong enemies because I'm stronger. These these passages compare together and they're saying the same thing. And what Jesus is saying here in Mark chapter 3, he's saying, "I, I I didn't come here to negotiate with Satan. I didn't come here to simply try to manage his mess. I'm not just here to minimize the destruction that he's brought. Jesus is saying, I'm here to crush his head. I'm here to bind him up. I'm here to take away from him the tools that destroys my people. I'm coming to set captives free. I'm going to forgive their sins. I'm going to—even their sins of slander against me. And eventually, eventually— I'm going to throw him into a pit. And Jesus is saying that before anybody can set any captives free, before he can plunder the house, Satan must be bound. Satan has to be bound. Now, like many of you, I have, at times, when facing very serious circumstances... Uh, walking with people who are uh, experiencing great difficulty, things like a a child going way off the rails, a marriage in significant trouble, somebody battling uh, an incredible addiction. There have been times as I have prayed over them or with them or for them that I have used the phrase, God, would you bind Satan? Would you bind Satan in this circumstance, in, in this moment? Maybe you've done it. Maybe, maybe you've heard it, and I want you to hear me say, think it's, I think it's okay. I think that's still okay, but I want you to know what we're really praying for is the protection of God. We're praying for the intervention of God. We're asking for the divine to step into this situation, but really, truly, biblically, historically, Jesus bound Satan. Past tense. Jesus has already bound Satan, and it happened on the cross. See, when Jesus with his last breath shouted, it is finished, it was finished. Satan was bound. The power that Satan had because of being able to hold our sins over our heads were shattered. Jesus bound him from that tool. And three days later, when Jesus got out of the grave and conquered death, Jesus stole that tool from Satan. He could no longer hold the fear of death and separation from He could He no longer had access to that. God bound his other arm. Jesus did on the cross and, and through his resurrection. So when you and I are praying, asking God to bind Satan, what we're actually praying is that God this great truth, would you apply it here? This great reality that I am living in because I'm a New Testament Christian, Satan has been bound, my sins are forgiven, I have life eternal, God take that binding power and apply it here. Because Satan no longer has that authority. And I'm asking God to apply that truth. And, and God, had, God had promised that. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, The very first time God prophesied to Satan about his demise. If you wanted to go back to Genesis chapter 3 and look at verse 15, uh, God is having this conversation with with Satan and and, and telling him that the curse that has come upon him, and and God says he, and and God is speaking of Jesus here. He said, he will crush your head. Sure, you're going to strike his heel, but he is going to crush your head. Now, we know that... Satan bruised Jesus on the cross and the events leading up to the cross, that Jesus was beaten and bruised and battered. Satan struck him. But Jesus went willingly to all that. He he chose all of that. And Satan may have thought for just a little bit, I did it, I won. But three days later, Jesus proved he had not. That he had been defeated and bound. And Jesus foretold what that would look like. Just shortly before he was with his disciples and he foretold, recorded in John chapter 12, verse 31. Jesus says this, now, in this time, now, with his disciples, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Friends, that happened on the cross. Jesus dealt decisively with Satan on Calvary. He is a defeated foe. He knows that the war has been won by Jesus, but he's not completely powerless yet. Not completely powerless yet. He's still out there running around causing havoc, and he'll continue to do so until Christ returns put him in the pit. In between services, somebody, uh, Dean Infinger came up to me and and told me a story that I'm not going to use the illustration I used in the first service, I'm going to use his illustration because he told me I could. But it was a story about, and I may not get it right because I don't have any notes written down. But, um, so maybe I'm making parts of this up. Um, But the story is told about a missionary that had served in Africa. And he was in a village and he was teaching. And while he was teaching there, um, one of the people that he was teaching was asking questions. And he asked the question about um, why, if, if, if Jesus has won a victory, why is there such brutality in the world? Why, why are there so many wars? Why is there so much sorrow and pain? Why, why can't people get along? Why, why do spouses turn on? Why, why, why is all this evil present? And the missionary tried to, to answer the question, but it didn't seem to satisfy well, later that day, the chief of the village came running because the whole village had been there for that teaching. The chief of the village came running to the missionary because he knew the missionary had come into the jungle with a gun. And um, he, he had a python in his, in his hut. And so he comes, gets the missionary, and the missionary, he says, get your gun. Uh, there's this python, you, you know, we, we need to take care of him. And so the missionary gets his gun, and he comes in, and he's got one bullet. It's all he's got left. One bullet, kind of like Barney Five, for those of you who know that story. He's got one bullet. And he knows the only way he can take this python out is a headshot. He's got he's to shoot him in the head. And so the missionary takes careful aim, and he shoots that python in the head. But then that python, though he is dead, he does what's called a death roll. And the nerves in his body just cause him to spin and spin and spin and spin and spin. And And he's such a big snake that he completely trashes the hut. But then he dies. And his havoc that he has wreaked is over. That is a picture of what took place On Calvary and we are right now stuck in the death roll he is just thrashing around he's doing everything he can to take as many people out as he can but he has no power and to believe that he has ultimate power is a lie and Jesus said about Satan in John chapter 8 he's the father of lies why would you expect anything else He's going to lie to you about the power that he has. He's a defeated foe. The stronger man, Jesus Christ, has come into his house and bound him. And Jesus is able to take authority over sickness and disease and death and demons. And that's why you and I, in his name, we can come and declare forgiveness to the world. Because of Jesus. It's why we can stand against any evil in his name. Because Jesus did the binding. And once Satan is bound up. And that truth is declared and believed. People who have been tied up, held captive, can be set free by the strong man Jesus. You and I can be set free. We do not have to live under those oppressive spirits. Now, Jesus has responded to his accusers. And he's coming. He's seated at the table. He's addressed these two accusations. He's responded with these powerful stories with points. But Jesus says now, truly. He says, truly. And when Jesus says, truly, this is in in, in verse 28. When Jesus says, truly, it means you can take it to the bank, it's, it's real. It's a done deal. You can trust in it. And this is what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. More of you need to be smiling right now. All sins will be forgiven. All of your sins will be forgiven. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they, being the scribes, were saying that Jesus, He has an unclean spirit. Now, Let's talk about the unforgivable sin in the moments that we have left. If you've read this before and wondered, what is this unforgivable, unpardonable? What is this blaspheming the Holy Spirit stuff? What in in the world is that? Well, if you struggled with that, you came to church on the right day. Because I want us to talk about this in what little bit of time we have left. It means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. See, what? think about what Jesus has been doing up until now. He's been performing miracles by the power of the Spirit. He has been casting out demons and healing people by the Spirit of the living God. In fact, if you go over to Luke's account of this same moment in Luke chapter 12, Luke describes... Uh, Jesus' statement here. He says, everyone who speaks, this is that warning, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. You can say anything about Jesus you want to, Jesus says. That can be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes, and this is an idea of continuous, who is blaspheming continuously against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. In other words, Jesus said, I'm doing the work that I'm doing by the power of the Spirit of God. There's a new kingdom come, and I'm, I'm the king. And Jesus is making this incredibly strong, powerful statement. And the scribes come along and say, uh-uh, you're doing it by the power of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. And so technically what they were doing were they, they were attributing the work that God was doing with the work of Satan. They were saying these things are equal, that th- this equals this, that this work Jesus is doing is not the work of God but Satan. So they were calling God a liar is, is in essence what they were technically doing. They were standing face to face with the Son of God, God, God in the flesh, and saying the power that you are operating out of comes straight from Satan. And that is what Jesus is saying right here. If you continue in that kind of denial— If you continue in that, down that path, it will lead to your eternal damnation. Now, remember, these men had witnessed blind people getting their sight. They had bore witness to lame people who had never walked before being able to walk. They saw these things with their own eyes. They saw people who had been possessed for decades Demons cast out and, and have a whole mind and a whole soul once again. But they still refuse to believe that it was the power of God. And say, they kept saying, no, it's Satan. I, I, we're, we're, we're unconvinced. It's, it's satanic power. And Jesus says, if you continue in that denial, if you continue to resist the prompting and the urging and the pulling of the Spirit of God ultimately, that will not be forgiven. So let's just step back for just a moment because there are people in our day who say that there's really no such thing as the unforgivable sin. And I get where they're coming from. I get if you've trusted Christ, that's, that's absolutely true. But there is One unforgivable sin. And Jesus is addressing it here. And he's saying it's got to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. And you choosing to continually resist that. Do you know anybody that's doing that in our day? Is there somebody in your family? Is there a close friend or co-worker? Somebody you go to school with? Who just continuously... Resist the compelling work of the Holy Spirit. The work that the Holy Spirit's doing to confirm. See, that work that Jesus was doing, that miraculous work of healing, casting out demons, the the teaching that he was doing, all that work was by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God was doing that work for the purpose of confirming that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. That's what the Holy Spirit was doing. He was confirming that work. And the, the Holy Spirit is doing that for the world today. He is trying to compel and convince the lost world that Jesus truly is the Son of God. And so, this is the great warning that Jesus has given to the scribes that day do not continue to deny my deity. The Holy Spirit is trying to prove it. The Holy Spirit is trying to convince it. Do not reject that he is God. Now, I love it. You know, when I stop and think about it and study this, it fascinates me that Jesus, the the one place that Jesus chose to address this concept of the unforgivable sin as it connects to the Holy Spirit was when he was being accused of not having the Holy Spirit of not operating in the spirit of God, but operating out of a demonic spirit. Now, just like the scribes in what we've read about whose hearts had grown hardened, people today see the transforming work of Jesus in the lives of others. You have people in your life who have seen Jesus radically transform the lives of others, and they they think, that's just fanaticism there's nothing real to that they're just you know they're they're those jesus freaks you know that, that that's that's all that's going on there and underneath that is you not wanting to surrender what you think of is your control when actually it's still satan in control still satan pulling the puppet strings and see jesus wants to cut those strings he wants to give you real life and real freedom and Jesus says, I love you. I died on the cross for you. I, I want to save you. But you're resisting, you're resisting, you're resisting. You're saying to yourself, oh, that, that's, that's not real. See, that's what the scribes were saying that day. You know, people, I've heard people say, yeah, I, I believe in God, but I don't need this Jesus stuff. You ever heard anybody make a statement like that? I believe in God, but I don't need this Jesus Those are some of the most wretched four words. I don't need Jesus. When what we all need to crowd is, I do need Jesus. I desperately need Jesus. But they, they think, uh, like the scribes, although that crowd hanging out with you, they're not as smart as me. They're not as learned as me. They don't spend as much time in the Bible. as a, they, they, they have all these things. They think they're smarter. And if you pursue that for the entirety of your life, Jesus says, you're going to end up on this path the scribes are on. And your mind will become darkened and your heart will become hardened. One of the things that was going on with the scribes, if you, if you look at specifically at that passage of Scripture, you know, where it says they were saying, that, that passage of Scripture literally means that they were doing it over and over and over and over again. They kept saying it and saying it and saying it and saying it. And and while they were doing that, they were convincing themselves of a lie until it moved from their head to their heart. And they become self-deceived and they were on the path to eternal damnation. But one thing that I want you to be captured by is that at that moment, they weren't completely away from the power of salvation. Remember, Jesus had just said, all sins can be forgiven. All sins. And so, the reason he's giving them this warning is because they were on the edge. They were right there on the edge. And one of the things that I want you to, to be captured by in this is Jesus never, ever, ever gave this so that somebody who was sincerely seeking him, somebody who was really pursuing him, somebody who was following after him, would begin to live with insecurity. I don't want you to raise your hand. I just want you to think this thought. Have you ever wondered to yourself, oh my, did I just commit the unpardonable sin? Have you ever wondered, did I did, did I do it? I'm not sure what it is. Did, did I do it? Well, most likely if you have asked that question, you haven't. Because your heart is not so hardened that you're not seeking the truth about God. You're you're, you're, you're not doing that, see Jesus had said all sins could be forgiven, so even with these these scribes he 's just giving this kind of last thing saying don't don 't let your hearts refuse the truth. One of my favorite succinct descriptions of the teaching of Jesus here was given by Dr. Gary Bashir uh, He was a theologian well is a theologian at, at Western Seminary. I just want to read to you what what he said about this idea of the unforgivable sin that Jesus is teaching on. He says, the unforgivable sin is refusing the calling of the Spirit. Anyone who feels the pull of the Spirit and refuses it remains in unforgiveness. However, if they respond, then every sin, no matter how awful, is forgivable. And that's Jesus' main point. He is saying every sin can be forgiven. But if you refuse the way of forgiveness, there's no possibility of being forgiven. And then Dr. Bashir goes on to say, and people in our day do that. They do that. People are, are still doing that. And, and you got to ask yourself the question, am I doing that? Am I denying the work and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit? Because if I continue to do it long enough, it could become for me the unforgivable sin. And there's only one way to miss the forgiveness of God. See, God's provision is through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. And the only path to, uh, to being separated from God is avoiding that truth, rejecting that truth, rejecting that forgiveness. And instead of doing that, we all just need to get to that place where we say, I recognize my sin. I recognize I do need Jesus. Instead of saying, I don't. So the bottom line here of the day really is the good news from Jesus that all sins, all sins, everybody's sins can be forgiven. All you got to do is get on that path. Don't resist. Let the work of the Spirit carry you to Jesus. Now, I want to close real quickly. We're going to move fast. Buckle your seatbelts because I want to give you four applications Quick applications with a lot of Scripture. Application number one from what we just heard about um, this unforgivable sin. Remember that unforgivable sin is a progressive rejection. Remember that. Don't lose sight of that. This is not a spontaneous reaction. It is not just a thoughtless mistake. It's not a sin of omission. This This is the sin of long haulers' commission. Intentionally rejecting and rejecting and rejecting and rejecting. It's, it's long haulers sin syndrome, if you would, of rejecting the Holy Spirit. Uh, in, in Mark chapter 3, 22, it says, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebub. He was saying it, they were saying it, they were saying it, they were saying it. And they convinced themselves of it. You've got you to gotta find the truth and speak the truth, or your mind will be darkened and your heart will be hardened. It wasn't this instantaneous sin. It was a rejecting work time and time again. Second application. Remember that we can all grow hard-hearted to spiritual truth while being fully immersed in it. We can all grow hard-hearted to spiritual truth while being fully immersed in it. These were the scribes, the top religious leader dogs of their day. They worked in the temple center of all religious worship uh, of that day. They were professional handlers of the Word of God. Their whole life revolved about around being immersed in the Word of God, but they did not know God. They didn't recognize when the Spirit of the living God was at work. Jesus, in the greatest sermon on the mount, gave us a warning, gave His disciples a warning, In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, that day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, you can be immersed in the work. You can be immersed in in church life, but you can miss the person of Jesus. It's not about the work. It's about the person. It's about knowing Jesus. You can show up here every single Sunday of your life. But if you miss Jesus, if you miss his invitation to have communion with him, to be with him, you'll miss it. Third application. I need to remember that I am in a spiritual battle. Always. Your biggest problem. My biggest problem is not my biggest problem. Yours' biggest problem isn't your biggest problem. Your biggest problem. My biggest problem is Satan. If you're a Christ follower, you have a big target on your back. And he is aiming at you. He wants to take you down. Jesus told Peter that Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. But then... Jesus told Peter, but I'm praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. Now Satan's coming to sift you. But Jesus is praying for you. If if you're a follower of his. But if you're not a follower of his, Satan wants to keep you blind. He wants to keep you deaf to the truth of God's word and blind to God's love and grace. He wants to do that to you. He wants to cut you off from God's power. In Ephesians chapter 6. Paul writes and tells us our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. That is our great battle. That's what we battle against right now. And that leads us to the fourth and final application. And I just want to fill you up with lots of scripture here, okay? The fourth and final application is this we need to remember who the battle belongs to. Remember you're in a battle. But remember who the battle belongs to. It's ultimately God's battle. That battle has ultimately, the war has ultimately already been won by Jesus. He's given us victory in the Old Testament. David, after slaying Goliath, makes this declaration in 1 Samuel 17. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people. This is the Lord's battle. In Exodus chapter 14 verse 14 this verse actually hangs over my office door I see it just about every day God's people they're they're backed up against the sea the Egyptian army has kind of got them with nowhere to go and God tells Moses tell the people this the Lord will fight for you you only need to be still Those were the instructions that God gave. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 4. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Over in the New Testament, Paul writes to the church at Rome, Romans 8, 37. He says, despite all of this, despite all the turmoil, despite all the darkness, despite all the evil you face in the world, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us enough to die for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 57 says, "Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ." You have the victory if you're in Christ. You have victory. We've already been given this victory. And then let me close with this verse, John 16:33. Jesus said this to his followers, "In this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulties. You're just going, it's going to continue." But take heart. I've conquered the world. I've overcome it, Jesus says. And he did that for you because of his love for you. He he has won the victory. Jesus alone did that by the power of the Spirit of God. Jesus alone did that. And so here's how I want us to end our time together today. I'm going to ask the worship team to start making your way down. Come on, start coming on down. Just start heading on down. I'm going to pray while they're walking down here. But I just want us to, to end our time together as people living in victory because of Jesus alone. No matter what you're facing. You may be facing, you may be walking through the valley of the shadow of death right now. You may be facing marriage, marital turmoil. You may be facing a a child going off. I don't know what you're facing. But you have victory in Jesus. You do in Jesus alone. Lord, we come right now. We come in this moment to thank you. To celebrate the great victory we have in you alone. Thank you that you have overcome death. That you bound death the strong man, because you have a greater strength. You took from him the threat of holding our sin over our head, that accusation. You took from him the power of death that kept us in fear. And you bound him because you have given us life and life eternal. Jesus, you alone did this. And so we come now to worship you. In your name alone we pray.